Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. All right, welcome to the show. A bit of housekeeping as we begin. If you enjoy this podcast, support us by leaving us a review. The stars matter a lot. The words are great too, but our our sponsors really like to see that people are listening, and we do too. Otherwise, we're not sure anybody is actually out there. So leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on. My guest today is Rich Miranov. Rich, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Rich, since I flubbed the first introduction, and this is take two, would you introduce yourself for us? <laughs> sure. Uh, my name is Rich Miranov. I'm a 30-plus year veteran in Silicon Valley of enterprise software product management. And these days I coach heads of product, and I do a fair amount of sort of design work on product management organizations and sometimes the larger product engineering design problem of how people fit together. And uh, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, been following your, your writings and your daily send outs, and it's a pleasure to join you. Well, thank you. And I have really enjoyed your writing as well. Your website is, a, you just write such good stuff. And we're going to have a link at the end to the, to the website where people can go and find more of your wonderful, wonderful content. But you really touched on something I think is so important. And that is this idea of designing organizations where people can really effectively work together. And I know that you work in the product management space oftentimes. And I know the people on the show also represent some of them, the engineering management space. Do you see a big difference between those two organizations in terms of how we think about the design principles for the organization? I, I really do. And I think they're, they're adjacent, you know, they're related, but, you know, mostly when we're thinking about engineering organizations, we tend to want to talk about throughput or volume metrics how efficient is the team? Can they get more done? I've never actually met uh, an executive who told me that the development organization was fast enough. Right? We know that, you know, in the history of the world, we always believe that we're one sprint or one more hire or one more release away from getting all the things we want. And honestly, it's never been true, right? It's, it's never true. It's never been true. And, and there's this sort of false economy that says the problem is throughput, the problem is speed, the problem is velocity. And when we put on our product management hats, we're actually asking a very different set of questions. Are we building the most important thing or things? Because we know that the more we throw at the team, the less we get done, right? If we got nine projects, we're going to finish none of them. So if we were only going to get two things done this quarter that are really important, have we chosen the right ones? Key product question, exclusive or question. Have we done good validation with our users and buyers in our market so that when we ship something beautiful and perfect and well, you know, well tested and with, with lovely workflows, if nobody buys it, it doesn't matter how good that work was. Right. And, and so product folks are worried about the questions of, is there an audience? Will they pay for it? Uh, what about the competition? How do we make money or you know, monetize this if it's supposed to make money? Uh, and at the far end, you know, how do we explain to the world what it is? Because, uh, again, it may be obviously true to some people, but most of the world is not software development engineers. And so when we have the, 
the development team describe what they're doing, most of the world doesn't understand, and then we fail. So, so the, the product problem, I think, brackets the development problem, which is at the front end, are we doing the right things in the right order for the right reasons with goals? And on the back end, are we delivering what the market wants and measuring success so we can tune and iterate the next time? That it's just fascinating because I, you're exactly right. You're one more the the quote unquote one more syndrome problem. We just need one more hire, one more sprint, one more server, one more whatever. And that most of these engineering organizations are thought of as how can I hear the word streamlined? How can we streamline it? Which sounds like a car, but of course, an engineering organization is actually nothing like a car. Right. It's a complex adaptive system. It's an organic thing. And, and I think there's this, this sort of weird, wrong analogy where we think of building software like building fences. Amen to that, right? brother. Yes. That's right. Because <laughs> all we need are you know a piece of land and something to dig holes in and generic labor. And we know just how long it's going to take to build a fence. Whereas Building software is perhaps the most creative and complex thing that people do in the world, or certainly up there. And it, uh, for me, it's much more like trying to write a hit song or, or, you know, a great jazz solo than digging ditches, right? Or going down to Home Depot to get a few folks at 10 bucks an hour for cash to sit in front of keyboards. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I used to tell my clients, it's funny, I used to say, because clients would approach me and, and uh, at my company, we built software for them. This is a very common business model in the world. And I would say now owning, uh, owning this software is more like owning a puppy than owning a fence. And that's exactly what I would tell them. And because I wanted to set this expectation that there's a lot of care and feeding involved. It's not just every 10 years, you give it a whitewashing. That's, that's exactly right. And and we have this sort of weird duality where on the one hand, we want to whip the development team faster because we think if we could just get it out a week earlier, somehow it's better. And then we're all grumpy and complaining when folks aren't excited by what we ship. Now, Rich, I, I, I see a lot into the engineering side of organizations, but you see a lot into the product management side of organizations. Does product management have these same flawed mental models about post holes and whipping, whipping sounds terrible, but is there those same kinds of analogies or pressures at play? I, I think good product management teams are the, they're the interface. They're the connector between the, what, what I would call all the makers, the developers, the designers, the tech writers, the test automation engineers, all the folks who actually do work. Right. And the, Generally, because I'm almost always working with software companies proper, where mm -hmm. the thing we build is software, and if it isn't good, we're out of business. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the house has this very simplistic view that, for instance, selling is hard, but building software is easy, right? And and so what, what I see and, and what I spend a lot of my time doing is pushing back on the executive team, on the marketing and sales side of the house, to continually and repeatedly push the the concept which they're not excited about that building software is more craft and art than it is you know science and, and repetitiveness and that's just it's a it's a concept that's got a lot of resistance to it yeah how do you think we got here I, I just think it's fascinating part of it I think if we if we go back to the classic IT organization and 
we'll, we'll save this up for a little later because I don't work with IT organizations. I only work with engineering teams because mm-hmm. engineering teams are costs are our profit centers, and IT groups are cost centers. Right? right. And if you go back thirty years and say, well, the IT folks are the ones who configured my laptop and wrote SQL reports against the customer database. And neither of those was conceptually difficult or even really that perhaps that challenging. And so if I wandered into my little IT group and I said, hey, we've got a new employee. I need a laptop by noon. Okay, we can do that. Did you fill out the form? And I need one more report. Can somebody bring up whatever you know, SQL-like report writer we have uh, because I need to switch the columns and put a, a total at the bottom. And, and those have not just only the feature that they're sort of straightforward, but we believe our senior users when they tell us what they want. So if, if you're the consumer of that one report, well, I guess you really know what you want, even if you're not sure what you're going to do with it. And if you are the employee who needs that laptop, okay, you need a laptop. That idea that things are completely predictable, that they're repetitive, that they're a manufacturing process, more than that, that if I ask for it, it's because I'm entitled to it and I know what I want, are are absolutely, for me, fundamental failures on the part of almost everybody on the non-maker side of the house uh, who are trained to write down on a post-it note what some random customer or buyer told them in eight words or less, assume it's self-explanatory, it's well thought out, it's strategic and everybody wants it, and then walk that post-it note over to some product manager waiting for them to leap up and say, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. We've been sitting idly just waiting for somebody (laughs) with a good suggestion and and now we can feel fulfilled because we were just sitting around waiting for somebody to ask for something. So you mentioned that marketing and sales really misunderstands. They have the wrong mental model about what engineering, like the the whole way products are built. So as somebody who's working in product management, how do you start to help them have and create a more useful model that, that is beneficial? I think there's really two pieces to that. One is to recognize that it's not their job to deeply understand the development process. So We hire salespeople because they're great salespeople, because they're optimists, because they're relentless. They never take no for an answer. You know, it's not selling until the prospect said no three times. They're great at escalating within the prospect's organization if they don't get what they want, which is whenever whenever they come to a product manager and ask for something and get told no, you can count to 10 and know that they've gone to your CEO to go over your head. But that, that marketing and sales and a lot of the other groups finance are just not it's not their job to deeply grok how we build stuff. On the other hand, we need to endlessly teach and share and model that because the bad assumptions lead to lots of bad decisions. So things I use, you know, I look for the simplest possible tools. I have a sort of paper version of a simple Kanban board that I carry around all the time where for each team or for each you know, piece of the development organization, there's a row. And in the far right column are the two or three most important things that we're currently in building. So they're in full development. The next column to the left of that is the things we're doing architecture and design on, because before we start full build, we should probably know how it's going to work. And the column to the left of that is the validation column, where we need to be going out in the market and finding out what good ideas are really not good ideas. And, and the reason to have it in a really simple printed form 
is because I'm always getting pulled aside in the hallway and somebody comes to me and says, oh, I need this thing. It's really simple. It's probably only 10 lines of code. I know we're agile. Can't we fit it into the current sprint? How hard could it be, right? We need to you know, add teleportation to our ERP system, right? Um, and, <laughs> right. and rather than be the person who curses them out and tells them they're stupid and kicks them in the butt and, and offends them, what I want to do is I want to pull out my little printed version of my Kanban board. And it's printed because I have no time in the hallway to go log on somewhere, right? If it's in an electronic system, I know nobody on the sales side will ever look at it. But we get to ask the question of which of the two things that this team is working on that we agreed on Friday at the executive staff meeting are the two most important things for the company. Do you think we should displace or delay or cancel for your new good idea that you thought of in the shower or in your commute in? Right. And then we, we sort of agree that those things are really important. So then we move one column to the left and say, well, okay, we could put your thing in, in and put it right into design and architecture. But which of the two things that are waiting to go into full development that we're doing design and architecture, do you think aren't important or aren't as important? Notice I keep framing this exclusive or yes. that no one on the sales side believes in the existence of exclusive or mm-hmm. right. And, and then, and then we agree that the things in design or architecture are really the next good ones up. And so now we agree that we should put your good idea into the validation queue and find out if it's not just your good idea, but maybe other folks in our customer base or market care, and maybe they don't. And so the best time to decide to not build something is before we start full development. Yes. Right? So, so that's a whole dance to repetitively push into people's faces in a polite way the idea that there's not infinite capacity, the team's not idling, waiting around, we have a plan, we can change the plan, but the things that are in the plan are the ones we've thoughtfully chosen for good reasons. And until we get a similarly good reason, we're simply not going to throw the current work out, leave ourselves half done, double up on whip, do all the things that development hates. Yeah, I, I really like that because it also tells me that nothing on the board was just thought of on the sh- in the shower and tossed in. You, you mentioned these phases, validation phase, and we have planning and architecture and design. Those those all mean that there's there's a process yes. that people have are going through. And yeah, things just don't get done on a whim. Well, sometimes they do. So, so in almost every organization, there's somebody at the top of the org chart who retains the right to walk over to the product and the, and the development teams and say, I know we had a plan, but there's a system down or there's a big deal, or I had a really good idea and I'm the boss of you. And so, you know, we, we have to be prepared for changes in the plan, but we want to buffer them. We want to slow them down just a little bit because the rate of seemingly good ideas is a hundred X or a thousand X our throughput. And so we're never, ever, ever going to be in the place where good ideas just walk up to us, bite us on the butt that we didn't see before. And we throw them into the, into the mix. That just, you know, that assumes all kinds of things that don't exist in the real world. Well, I want to kind of turn back to something we talked about. So I'm imagining this very important person who begins thinking the right way the the way i can really get something done is just by telling someone i'm the boss you're going to do it and my guess is is this is a reaction to things not moving the way they want them to 
not moving fast enough, not being at, nimble enough, whatever the framing is. There's some dissatisfier. So they decide to break glass and pull the fire a lot, like, and they're going to use their power. And I have seen, and I'm wondering if you have too, that after a while, even when that starts to not work, sometimes people think some larger organizational change will fix the problem, that we're just not structured right. And I wonder if you see that as well. I see that in a lot of places, and and often it's described to me in very qualitative terms as we're not innovative enough. Mm, So that would be the thing they want to increase. That's right. And generally behind that, if you say, well, why do you think that or how do we know? There's usually some random set of inputs from the sales or the marketing or the support teams about stuff we haven't done, right? The support organization always has a list as long as my arm of their top issues and bugs. And, you know, just as every system has a bottleneck, we know that if we fix the number one top bug, something else is now the number one top bug. be a new number one. Right. And so so even if we put 100% of all of our, you know, product and design and, and development engineering effort into fixing all the things that support wanted, we might never get to the bottom of that list. By the way, if we're in the software business, we're now out of business because we've neglected competitors, we've neglected new markets, we've neglected new features, we've just done the sustaining stuff, and ultimately everybody walks away. Likewise, and again, I'm mostly on the enterprise side, B2B, I've never met a B2B enterprise customer who didn't want a few things that weren't in my product. And usually it's a pretty short list of no more than eight or 900 items, <laughs> right? Um, right. And, and, and I know that anytime we lose a deal, by the way, when we win deals, you may not know this, when we win deals, enterprise sales reps are able to explain that it's because they are great sales reps. And when we lose deals, it's either because we're missing a feature, see list, or the price was too high, right? Those are the two reasons why salespeople explain we lost deals. Now, this is so, a fundamental attribution error, right? Yes, in psychology. It's absolutely fundamental. And and I've never, you know, I've never met a good salesperson who admitted that they, you know, had any hand in losing a deal. It's not who they are, right? It's not what they're paid right. for. It's not how they're rewarded. It's not how they're promoted. The good ones go get to go to club in Fiji or Hawaii and drink a lot and sleep around and do things I don't know about because I'm not invited, right? But back to the the sort of uh, innovation question, there's an endless list of deals we didn't win. And attached to every one of those deals is a handful of things that we either didn't have or we got told we didn't have. They may not even be real. The customers may not even need them. Nobody's abetted them. But there's an endless list of stuff we didn't do. And so the 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 sort of mis, you know, misconception here is if we just got all of those things done, one, we're never going to get them done. And two, if you've ever, you know, if you ever tried to find a feature that you couldn't find in Microsoft Office, oh yes, it, right, it's the result of 30 plus years of let's add one new feature. And when you add all those features, your product becomes useless. It becomes unusable. It becomes worthless. And so The product problem here, as opposed to the development engineering problem, is how do we hold back all of the seemingly good ideas that are going to incrementally make my product less useful, less good, less friendly, harder to fix, harder to build, 
How do we push back on the one-off feature that's just for one big customer that's going to cause us to create another code line? Right? How do we hold back the chaos such that we can stay on track with building a product that the market wants in volume, that's usable, that's beautiful, that's good, that's tested, that works in the face of the other half of the organization, which endlessly forgets limitations and wants one more thing. So there's a lot of education here. Uh, again, I don't actually believe that it that the senior execs at my company will ever really embrace this thought, but it's my job to keep reminding them until they're starting to have some reaction. Back to your puppy analogy, um, you know, if your puppy pees on the carpet and then you immediately give your puppy a treat, right? Yes. We know how this works. And so when we have an enterprise sales team where the, the salesperson came to the product team and got to know, went around them to engineering, got to know. And then they went to the CEO who overrode product and engineering and gave them a yes. We've now established the peeing on the carpet model where senior experienced salespeople at our company now know that the way to get things done is to escalate through the CEO and to override and to jam something into the backlog and the top into the sprint via the CEO or the VP of sales because product engineering don't give me what I want. I have seen that many times and it happens not just with sales, right? There's a lot of different groups who can, who find that whether it's throwing a fit or going around people, I mean, there's reasons all these things happen. And, and there's, and there's good reasons for some of them, sure. but as a as a behavioral model, it fails. It fails. Now, I'm curious. I want to turn back just a moment. So we've been talking a little bit about how these two organizations, we've talked about sales and product, how they interact. Yep. And I'm curious, do you see, because I really have no idea. It sounds like you have a lot of visibility into the sales organization. Do they do reorgs as often as I see engineering or products doing reorgs? Not so much. They, they do something that is generally smaller than that. So there's a lot of rearranging of accounts or territories. Oh, yes, I've seen that. Right. So as, as your company grows and you go from 10 salespeople to 20, you end up carving up smaller territories and giving those folks you know, more depth, more quota in their areas. And then you've got sort of regional structures and there's usually some helpers. There's like field sales engineers and other people who assist in the selling cycle. But I think, so it's less about blanket changes unless you for instance move from a channel model to a direct selling model where you dramatically change your product set or when i see companies move from on-premise software to SaaS software it gets very very different the selling cycle the teams the you're right so so when there's major change like that i see that happen but there's a lot of shuffling around the other thing to note here is most salespeople are paid quarterly like quarterly bonuses or quarterly i'm sorry commissions. Well, so, so commissions so i either hit my number or i don't for the quarter and at the end of the quarter i get a big fat check if i have hit my number and then i start fresh now i may drag some prospects from quarter to quarter but it's much more discreet in the sense that you could pick me up at the end of the quarter and plop me down on a new product or a new territory and and yeah, I lost some, you know, some continuity on some things, but usually you give me a little slack for that. 
And then I, I sell on what you give me in the territory you give me in the channels that you give me. And so there's a lot of people leaving at the end of the quarter after they collect their big bonus, mm-hmm. their, their commission check to go do something else or go do it somewhere else. I feel like I'm, I'm, I just watched in the last month, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and the leads are terrible or <laughs> the leads are terrible. That's right. And, and uh, I keep, I keep that clip, that brilliant clip with Alec Baldwin, who's in that movie, he's young and gorgeous, oh. right. Uh, explaining that first prize is a Cadillac. Second right? prize is the steak knives. Second prize says steak knives. Third prize. You're fired. You're fired. Right. And, right. and. I, I I play that clip for a lot of my development teams and my product teams because folks simply don't believe that that's how life works on the sales side. There's such a culture gap. There's such a perception gap that, you know, it's less fiction than you would like. Yeah. And we laugh about it here and I've always kind of smiled at it, but, but it is an individualistic competition between people they rank like they think nothing of the ranking right the sales contest that is live for the rankings absolutely that is the standard way they they so therefore and i'm just uh, the idea of like let's organize our group to work better together doesn't matter because everybody's just an individual over there that's right and there might be small teams for instance there might be a senior sales rep and a sales development person and and an se as a team but Every sales organization has thermometers on the walls and competitions and spiffs. And it's all about, uh, were you in the top 10%? Did you beat your quota? Did you get to go to president's club for the quarter? Uh, you get the little plaque on your desk. It's, it's intensely competitive. And so the idea that, for instance, you would have a development team where we don't call out an individual and say, that's the best person on the team. We don't have the star of the quarter, right? It's bizarre. It's weird. It's, what do you mean, right? Because it is, sales is much more of an individual sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we go out, we go to such great lengths to keep our teams working as teams, to reward the team, to bring out the team to the escape room or the pizza or the trip or whatever it is, right? To have metrics for the team, to, help each other in the stand-up to say, I need help. Is there somebody who can give me a hand, right? You don't see that in the sales organization because it's all personal score. Yes. I can't even imagine a sales stand-up. People would just not want to say exactly, right? (laughs) To heck with you, buddy. I'm not revealing anything. That's right. Okay. Well, well, let me, let me ask this. So I'm imagining as long a spectrum. So here we've got the sales group, very individualistic, lots of competition. It's an individual sport. And then we get engineering where more and more we're hearing. And I think a good, a good thing is, you know, software development is a team sport and we want people to collaborate. We have mobbing and swarming. And so where along that spectrum does product management fit? We get a bit schizophrenic, So maybe one of the most important characteristics or skills for a product manager is to vary their language choice from meeting to meeting. And so when I'm sitting with my development team, I need to both sound and act like somebody who fits in, who thinks about the long term and the next release and the backlog and the process and all the stuff, right? When I'm that very same person and I'm in a meeting with a customer, or prospect, I'm mostly talking about benefits and return on investment and value and why they should sign a piece of paper and give us a bunch of money for our stuff. And when I'm talking with my executive team, I'm mostly talking about money. 
current costs, future costs, what's this next release work? Why is that feature we're going to add going to lead to more upsell and revenue and reduced churn? So there's this sort of uh, language mush where product folks have to, throughout the day, express the same ideas and the same goals and the same metrics and the same intention in radically different language that matches up against what each of the groups cares about. So when I'm talking with my development team, I'm always trying to insert motivation, right? Here's what I heard from the last customer call. Here's the interviews. How are we doing on numbers and sales? I want to have a recording of somebody either happy or complaining about something in the product because honestly, my team doesn't want to hear from me. They want to hear from the real end users who matter, right? So, so inward looking, I'm always trying to inject reality and market sense and joy and you know to be able to tell my team that the work they did was wonderful and here's a couple people talking about our new workflow or whatever we fixed so they can feel important and successful but when i'm sitting with the sales team i'm basically giving them a checklist that says here's the five or six qualifiers for our product if you're talking to somebody who doesn't check five of these six boxes move on right stop wasting your time because you're you know, you're trying to sell in the wrong place. And, and those, those concepts have to mesh, they have to match, but the language is entirely different. Right. Do the product managers typically work together or the way you're describing it? I'm imagining me, if I were a product manager in the morning, I'm with engineering, I'm creating empathy and motivation. Later I'm with the sales team saying, this is the perfect market just ignore people who aren't in it. And in the afternoon, I'm with the executives, but it's all me in each place. Is there right. group work in product management? There is some, and it depends a lot on your product set. So if you've got five relatively standalone products and five product managers assigned to those who all work for, let's say, you know, imagine I'm the head of product or the chief product, whatever, I might have four or five people working for me. And the interactions are actually pretty light mm -hmm. because we really only have to get those folks working when there's shared infrastructure or competing goals or one one product or piece is going to support the other. Now, but if I'm in a, a sort of suite where there's two or three layers of architecture and a bunch of enabling technology and you know, maybe we sell one big block of stuff, but it's broken up into 15 or 20 value streams. Now my product managers have to be much more collegial, collaborating. We have to have shared goals. So in the same way that there's no one perfect organization for every company, if the company and the product set and the customers need product managers to be much more collaborative, then we've got to force that to be in place because they are naturally sort of solos. They tend to be a bit lone wolf if you think about parents of kindergartners, right? Okay, I've got um, one in my mind, yes. Right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever met a parent of a kindergartner who didn't tell you that their kid was the smartest and the best athlete and the best looking and everything else, of right? Of course, of um, course. And, and when they get a report card back, their kid is not at the top of the class. They're, they're in yelling at the teacher, right? Product management is a lot like raising children. Um, ooh, ooh, okay. Yeah, you, you the parent have to have a plan when your kid's born to send them off to university someday, maybe, right? Your goal is to get them to leave well. That's right. But, you know, if you think about the next 18 releases, <laughs> right? Right. And the, the, the college fund you have to start now, 
right? Put that in the tech debt category. If you don't start saving for college till you get 16, fewer options, right? Uh, you know that your, your newborn, your one-year-old can't yet play the violin, but if you're going to get your kid to Carnegie Hall, you're driving your kid to a lot of practice, 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 right? And so the product manager has to take the long view, has to protect that product from all the outsiders, has to give it a chance to thrive and grow and find its own market. You know, every product's different. They're all going to find their place, but almost all products are terrible in release one. Mm-hmm. I mean, Microsoft taught us that nothing works till release 3.1, right? 3.1, right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, if, if you let your product be shut down because in version one, it wasn't very good, then you're not a product manager, right? I, I have to defend and protect and plan and, and it's never a perfect plan. It's never right. But, you know, how do we find for some early customers and then some later customers, how do we grow the revenue line? How do we, how do we do all the things that we have to do over the long term in the face of organizations that think very short term? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. In the last part of this episode, I want to turn back to some of the organizational change things that you and I were talking about, because before we hit record, we were having this really interesting conversation. So I want to loop back and include the listeners. So one of the things we were talking about was how creating organizational change or or effective, maybe that's the better way to say effective organizational change is more than just a new org chart and then announcing who reports to who. So if you, when you see your clients wanting to make an organizational shift like that, how do you, how do you help them think about it in a way that's more useful? Got it. Yeah. So, so let's take an example that I run into all the time. So let's imagine an organization that's doing the narrow version of Scrum. Okay. Where you've got a product owner who only does what the Scrum book says, which is, is available to the team 24 by seven, write stories, accept stories, and never, ever, ever speaks directly to a real user or a customer. Gets all of their input from stakeholders and proxies and other four-letter words, right? And then they also have somebody who's charged with some kind of product title who looks out at the world and comes up with product strategy and hasn't a clue how anything's built, never has to make an or choice, assumes the development team is, you know, underperforming because they don't get what they want all the time, believes that roadmaps are perfect and good predictors of the future. And so I, I look at organizations that have this particular split between a product owner and a marketing outward-facing product manager, and I mm-hmm. observe that they get pretty poor stuff built. If you're in the software business, that's no way to behave. Mm-hmm. So I come in and say, well, we need to merge. We need to have a single person who does the end-to-end product management job, which is half inward-facing, doing the product owner content or role, and half outward-facing, spending lots of time with customers and prospects and partners and interviews and right competitors, so that when we write a user story, it turns out to be not just grammatically correct, but useful. Right? If you're not in the field, I believe most of the user stories you write aren't very good. So easy for me to say, well, let's just reorganize everything. But then you look around and you notice that you've got 15 teams with 15 product, well, sorry, 15 teams with 11 or eight product owners. So we're already short. And you should have had 15 outward facing product folks and you've got five. So we're shorthanded. And most of the product owners 
don't have yet the skills or experience to do customer interviews, market sizing, business cases, argue down sales and marketing. They are in an order-taking role because that's how the old IT thing worked. And the outward-facing market folks or product folks are product light. They're engineering light. They couldn't find their way to sprints and scrums if you gave them all the consonants in the right order. But they do think it's like building a fence. Probably. Yeah, how hard could it be, right? Yeah, so so I want to come in and I want to merge those two jobs. But I know that most of the folks in those current jobs don't yet have the skills and we're short. So rather than you know fiat from the top, thundering from the, the mountains and we throw down two tablets, right? Mm-hmm. What I want to do is I want to find one team with one product owner who seems to have the right stuff, who I can coach and mentor, and we're going to take one team and we're going to rearrange what they do. We're going to take the, the outward-facing market product person and move them on to something else. We're going to take that one you know, opportunistic product owner and give her or him a bunch of training and help and support. And we're going to try to show over the course of, say, three months that that works better. It's classic, agile, retrospective, you know, think about your situation. Because if we simply declared that everybody was in a new job, we'd find that nobody knows what that job is. Most of them either lack the skills or the interest, and everybody's going to revert back to their old behaviors. But Rich, we gave them job descriptions. Yes, that's great. And the HR folks tell me that if we wrote write a job description, everybody will read it and understand. Uh-huh. So maybe that's not a perfect solution. Not a perfect solution. Uh, In fact, in that job description, often you'll find, you'll be told that product's in charge of the what and development or engineering's in charge of the how. Now, I've actually never found that to be useful in practice because they're deeply wound around each other. And and my team resents me when I come in and I tell them how to solve the problem or what the problem is. We get much better results and much happier people if we collaborate together on making sure we all understand or agree on the problem before somebody writes down the solution. But the HR thing says, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, products in charge of what and engineers in charge of how. And that that just creates, you know, definitional argument where if, if I think it's mine, I'll tell you it fits in my category. Right. Let's back up. Just, I, I really like the way you frame this organizational change. You'll find someone who's doing something that resembles what you want. You will work with them. You'll remove the, the, the person or the, the role that isn't useful in the new way, and you'll work with them to increase skill and to increase understanding about that role. For example, you've got somebody who's normally facing inward and you say, well, you've got a little bit of outward facing thinking going on. You're really good at this. People seem to see that you're, you know, you're also probably somewhat influential in the organization. So let's have you be our, and this little group kind of is where you start that fire. Is that kind of the way I'm hearing it? That's right. That's spot on. You know, I, I, th- I think back to Tom Sawyer, right? So, so the Tom Sawyer answer is how do we make it such that everybody else wants to paint my fence? Right. And, and, you know, I think every good development side, agile transformation starts with a couple of groups that do it well, that get good coaching, that get support, that get protection and umbrellas from above so that everybody else can look at it and say, well, I want to be one of the smart kids. I want to play with the new toys. How come I didn't get to do 
Kanban or Scrum or whatever thing we're doing, right? How come they got to do this and I didn't? When, when you've done it a little bit successfully with a small team, you can seed the concept, you can share the concept, and now people want to play. I observed that I can't make anybody do anything. I can only make them want to do the things I want them to do. Okay, I have to grok that. I can only make them want to do the things. That's right. I can't make them do the. Th- they have to. They have to make themselves do the things. But maybe I can paint a picture. I was just taking a course on systems thinking for leaders at Cornell just last night. It talks about sharing the party photos with the fence sitters and naysayers, the party photos being like, look how great this is at the party, right? And therefore you start to say, come on over. This party is fantastic. That's right. That's right. Because anytime we change roles or change jobs or change any of the stuff, there's resistance, there's confusion, there's the need for getting folks along, you know, in, in the right way. As a, for instance, whenever I pick up one of these product owners who's been all inward facing, they don't have experience pricing products or packaging products or end of life in products or rolling them out or doing migration plans or, you know, there's a whole stack of things that are going to come up in those first three months. And rather than throw them in the water and see how cold and deep it is, I want to be there to say, ah, next week we're going to spend a couple of hours talking about, you know, incremental release planning and upgrade planning because you haven't done it and you need it. And after we do it once or twice, you'll have that skill and nobody will have to help you anymore. This is a beautiful reason to have somebody like you around. I have a feeling that you really, you light that fire and you also enable the organization to get better and you teach them these ways of self-modifying their structure. You bet. That's for me, this is fun. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Rich, what, uh, what else is on your mind right now? We've got a few more minutes. Let's find a last uh, last quick topic here. A challenge that I face every day that I, I was just on the phone with yesterday, somebody about, was professional services organizations versus product organizations. Yes, I have and, some and, and let, comfortability. Yeah, I have some experience right. with both. And, and, and let me define carefully what I think I mean by that, which is a professional service organization is one where individual clients come show up or the sales team brings them in and they have a thing they want you to build Mm -hmm. and you build it once Mm -hmm. and you charge them more than it costs you to make it that's profit and we call and we call that margin or profit and then the next thing comes in and we blow up the team and we put a new team together to build the next thing somebody wants right and so it's a it's a sequence of one-off custom sometimes they say bespoke right they do like to say that these days. That's right. And and the way you make money is you keep your technical team busy and billing. Right. right? And, and there's never been a, a project that came in the door that we said no to because the way we make money is we hire more people and we put them to work doing whatever individual clients want us to do. We call that a scalable or elastic workforce. Okay, good, great. Now there's a name for it, right? In, in the product game, we do exactly the opposite. Okay, so the goal of a product is that we build it once. And let's pretend it's software because that's where I live. Right? Yes. We can, and by the way, it costs us 5 or $10 million to build that first unit. But the second copy we sell costs us nothing. 
and the third copy costs us nothing. And so in the product business, it's all about finding a price point that the market wants, figuring out what the break-even is. Okay, we need 100 customers to break even. The 101st customer is almost 100% profit, right? Mm-hmm. But what that means is we have to first do our homework. And so service organizations, professional service organizations, don't have product managers, no, and they certainly they have, don't have homework. They'll do, they're, they're mercenaries, they're hired guns. They're mercenaries, right. And so they have project managers mm-hmm. who make things deliver on time. But if you want to give them 100000 or $500,000 to build something, the answer is yes, right? That's right. In, in the product business, it's the reverse. We, we don't want to start building anything unless we know there's 100 customers for it. And so we can't take any one customer's word for that. We have to do our homework. We have to do our research. We have to do our market sizing. We have to see what the competition's doing because we're going to charge less for each copy than it costs to build it. Mm-hmm. Because that's how the software business works. That's how the software product business works. And so it's all about volume. It's all about resisting one-offs and specials. It's all about keeping people in a small number of packages or prices, single units. Because we need to sell a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand, because that's how you make money in the software product business. So, but that's a tremendous conceptual leap for folks on the services side who think they want to get into the product business, because they put a product team together, and then a week later, some new project comes in, and we say, "Oh, we're just going to borrow a couple of those folks for just a few days." I have literally done this literally at my company. And we tried for years and kept getting, quote, interrupted with paying customers waving dollar bills at us. That's right. And and either of those models is good, mm-hmm. but the intersection of those models is a, it's is a terrible. failure. It's terrible. In, in fact, I, the only way we, we actually released an iPad product, the only way it happened was that our biggest customer unexpectedly disappeared. And we had this wonderful mobile engineer and we said, well, we bet some more work's gonna come along. And we were able to fund that person working for four months and then release a small iPad project uninterrupted. But had anything come in? That's right. And, and, and if you have a mostly services company and you're trying to build uh, something big, right? It's gonna take a team of nine a year to do it. And then just this once, every Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, we borrow just one or two people from the team, or maybe all 10. Everywhere I go, I see this same pattern playing out where we think we're in the product business, but we're not. Knowing what business you're in, I've found is extremely important. And not falling for the grass is always greener fallacy. Because you're right, both businesses are great. And you can make a lot of money. But if you get confused you're, you're almost, it's death. That's it. And, and so I'm always encouraging folks who want to be in the product business to find a partner company that's in the services business. Mm. So we can do the product work and we can throw all of the hourly and project work to our partner and they get to make money. We get to make money, but we have very radically different organizations manage differently, goals differently, hired differently. I can look at an org chart and tell you which of the two kinds of companies you're in. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. You heard it first. If you're trying to be both, stop it. Yeah. 
I mean, if that's all you walk away with, if you're a product company and you think let's offer some services or you're a services company and say, hey, we build products for other people. Let's just do it for ourselves. Uh, this is just don't do that. Rich, it's been a real pleasure to get to chat with you today. Where can people find you online and engage with your work? Uh, I've cleverly gotten a domain name that's the same as my last name. So I'll spell it because it's hard, but it's M-I-R-O-N as in Nancy, O-V as in victory. So I'm at Miranov.com and I've cleverly taken the email handle rich at Miranov.com. That is clever. So easy to find. And there's 18 years worth of blog posts and videos and tools and templates on my website. So everybody should take that and just, you know, grab whatever's useful. It is a treasure trove. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I love it. Thanks for letting me join. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.